Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, we finished our study of Mark's gospel last Sunday. So where do we go from here? What's, what's the next sermon study? Notice I said study and not series. We don't do series. We do studies. We study the word of God. Are we going to learn from one of the many great books of the Old Testament? How about Genesis? How about Genesis? How, like how, God, how God created the world, why he created the world, what happened to the world. We got the birth of Israel. We got all the dysfunctional men and the women um, that go along with that narrative. Oh, Genesis is a great book. It's a wonderful book. What about first, uh, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings? Those are great books too. The high points, the low points of Israel's history and how God brings everybody through all of that dysfunction. Wonderful books. And then we've got the, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Oh, oh man. What about the minor prophets like Joel and Amos and Micah? Those are little books, but man, they are packed. They are packed with good stuff. What about the Song of Songs? No, we are not doing the Song of Songs. <laughs> Maybe we should stay in the New Testament and study one of the epistles. Learn some of the theology, right? Maybe we should dive into Romans and learn the deep things of Almighty God. Right? That'd be fun. I received some requests to go through the book of Revelation. That'd be fun. Learn some eschatology. So what are we going to do? Man, we've got so many choices. They're all good. They're all amazing. They're all the word of God. So what are we going to do? Well, I believe that the Lord Jesus wants us to stay in the Gospels. In fact, I think that the Lord wants me to preach through all four Gospels back to back to back. And here's why. We live in a time where the Lord Jesus can come back at any moment he has promised to return for his church. It's called the rapture. And you can read about that in 1 Thess 4 and Revelation 3. So time is short. Time is short. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. In fact, there's nothing to be scared of if you're a child of God. But since time is short, as a church, we must do our job. And that is to focus on the good news and the saving message of the gospel. Our job is to share this message of Jesus to those that God places in front of us here in the Verde Valley, uh, sharing the true gospel, not the watered-down gospel, but the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Is, that's why we exist as a church. And that's why I, I continually ask you guys and, and remind you to take those blue invitation cards that are out in the foyer and give one of those blue invitation cards out, one per week, Imagine what, what God would do 
if everybody in the church did that for 2022, imagine what he would do with the Verde Valley. Is that too much to ask? To give one card out a week? You know, there are two things that are eternal. We got God's word and God's people. So that's the primary reason that we're going to stay in the Gospels for the next, uh, I don't know, 10 to 12 years. <laughs> we'll see how long it takes. Secondly, by studying Mark's Gospel, did you guys notice that we learned a lot about the Old Testament at the same time? Did you observe that we, we turned to the epistles and we did learn theology? Uh, additionally, we looked at Proverbs and Psalms and we learned from the wisdom books. And furthermore, we learned about prophecy. We learned about eschatology. We, we learned about history as well. So, so what's my point? Well, my point is when we study the Gospels verse by verse, we do learn the whole counsel of Almighty God. We focus on Jesus because Jesus is the one that teaches us the Bible because the Bible is about Jesus. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Now, why Matthew? Isn't that just a repeat from Mark? Uh, not at all. Let me, let me explain first before we dive in how the Gospels are a little bit different. When the Holy Spirit inspired each Gospel writer to write an account of the life of Jesus... Nobody was able to include everything that was said or what Jesus did. In fact, John tells us that in, in John 21, 25. There were also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So with that being the case, each gospel writer, they had to be selective about what was recorded. Yes, a few of the events were recorded by all four Gospels, no doubt about that. But even when they did record the, the same event, it was written through the lens and of their audience along with their theme. That's why we often go to the other Gospels to fill in the gaps. There's a beautiful harmony in the Gospels. It's like a beautiful orchestra, orchestra that, that's playing when you, when you harmonize them and read them together. And that brings me to key point number one this morning. The Gospels are complementary. They are not contradictory. The Gospels are complementary. They are not contradictory. But even as we read them and study them individually, there is a magnificence. There's a beauty in understanding why the Gospel writer wrote what he wrote. Each Gospel writer fulfilled a specific need by the power of the Holy Spirit so let me, let me give you a few more examples here. We just finished Mark. Mark wrote to the Romans. We learned that. The theme of Mark's gospel was Jesus as a servant. And the Romans, they had a primary interest in action. That's why Mark only gives, gives us the highlights. He was saying immediately Jesus did that. Immediately Jesus did this. Mark presents Jesus as a Jason Bourne, right? He was always doing something. Luke, not so much. Luke... His gospel emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Luke's audience was to the Greeks. The Greeks had two major areas of interest. Number one, they were intrigued by this concept of an ideal man. Settle down, ladies. I, I, I know. 
Number two, they were really interested in historical accuracy. John's gospel, his goal was to reach the lost. His audience was Gentile believers. So John emphasizes the miracles and the passion narrative. And then that leaves us with Matthew. Matthew's gospel aims to prove that Jesus is the king of all kings. His original audience was the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Jews. And Matthew also talks a lot about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God anyway? What is that that fuzzy, ethereal phrase? What's it even mean? Well, the kingdom of God, that's the church. That's you and me living inside this world. And Matthew's gospel teaches what it looks like to be a true church. Why is functioning as a true church, why is that important today? Especially at this time in history. Where's the relevance in all of that? Let me show you this. Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. And this verse is important because there are so many Christians in our backyard that are not part of any church family. There are so many people who don't know the, the true message about Christ and they are without hope, and that should break our hearts. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another. We come together to encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, dear friends, I get the sense that this is a time more so than any other uh, in history that Jesus is calling back his church. His true church. God is calling back uh, disciples from Christians. Because as you see here in Hebrews, the day is approaching. That, that day is either the day of the rapture for the church, or it's a time of judgment for those who don't believe. And that's why every local church has one primary function, and that is to share the gospel. Uh, we are to finish life well by doing that. So with that introduction, let's begin the study of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is the the first of the Gospels. It's also the longest. It's the most Jewish, and in many ways, it's the most compelling. There is a reason that Matthew is the the first of the four Gospels. It's a bridge book, meaning that it's a link between the Old Testament and the New. If we read the last book of the Old Testament, the famous Italian prophet Malachi. Oh, wait, no. I mean, I mean Malachi. He, he didn't make sandwiches. If we were to, to read the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and we were to turn either to, to Mark or to Acts or to Romans, we would be baffled. We would be lost. It wouldn't make any sense to us. So bring, that brings us to key point number two. The Old Testament is a book of promise, while the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. The Old Testament is a book of promise, and the New Testament is a book of fulfillment. So the Old Testament, it promises a king like no other. This king will reign and rule with perfect justice. The Old Testament scriptures, they prophesy time and time again that this great king will not only have the righteousness and the wisdom 
He's going to have power and authority like no other. He's going to rule over Israel, yes, but he also is going to reign over the entire world. This king has the power to crush Satan's head. This king will take back man's authority that was lost through sin. This king will establish a kingdom on earth that will extend into eternity. See, it's in Matthew that we learn a new, about a new king, but also about a new church. Matthew's the only one that uses that word church, ecclesia. King Jesus and the church, they do things differently. They don't act like the world. We don't act like the world. Now, the first difference in Matthew's gospel is noticing God's sense of humor with Matthew himself. The first gospel in the, in the canon of scripture was written by an IRS agent. That's pretty funny. Matthew betrayed his family. He turned his back on his heritage to make money off the backs of his brothers and his sisters. This obviously caused a lot of angst in his life. And this angst with Matthew is probably why the other gospel writers, they don't record a single word Matthew said. Evidently, the other disciples, they, they didn't want to talk to the poor guy. Scripture doesn't say what kind of person Matthew was before Jesus called him to be a, a disciple. It's a pretty good bet, though, that Matthew was not religious because of Matthew's profession. He was shunned from the local synagogues, probably even from the temple in Jerusalem, being ostracized. It, it may be one of the reasons that Matthew accepted Jesus' invitation so quickly. It was exceedingly rare that, that tax collectors were accepted and befriended by a, a fellow Jew, especially a rabbi. So from the outside looking in, though, it's easy to see why Jesus chose Matthew as a disciple. Jesus had a very specific calling for him. Matthew, obviously, he could read, he could write. Uh, he most likely was trilingual, speaking Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but because he was dealing with Jews and Greeks and Romans day in and day out, he had to communicate to all of those folks. He obviously was very good with numbers. He was highly detailed. And all of these qualities prepared Matthew to pen this gospel. And now Jesus invited him in to get his heart right. The first thing that Matthew gives us is the genealogy of Jesus. So why is ancestry important? If a man shows up and appears or just claims to be a king, what's the first thing that the public's going to ask for? Prove it. Right? What's your background? What kind of credentials do you have? Who's your daddy? Where do you come from? Now, out of all the countries in the world, the United States of America is one of the few that doesn't really put a whole lot of emphasis on genealogies. But we see the importance of bloodline through our friends in England, don't we? Queen Elizabeth. Who doesn't love the queen? Prince Charles. Not so much. <laughs> Prince Harry and his American wife. We're not even going to get into that. But bloodline is very, it is very important to most other countries. So the Holy Spirit uses Matthew to anticipate these questions about Jesus' ancestry. Brings us to key point number three. 
Royalty depends on heredity. Royalty depends on heredity. So Matthew needs to establish Jesus' rights to the throne at the very beginning here. Um, I heard of a missionary translating the Bible into a new language, and, and she wanted to start in Matthew's gospel. But she decided to skip Matthew chapter 1, you know, just to get to the good stuff. She ministered to this group for 10 years, for a decade, teaching them Matthew's gospel. And in that 10 years of ministry, not one convert, not one. She said that when the trucks brought the translation of the Bible into their own language and they were delivered, uh, the tribe was more interested in the trucks than they were in the Bible. So in her frustration, she decided to go back and finish, what Ma uh, finish Matthew by translating chapter 1. When she finished the genealogies, that's when people came to know, to know the Lord. Why? Because they didn't realize that Jesus was a real person. They thought the gospel was fiction before that. Everything started to click for this tribe when they realized that Jesus was a real person with absolute royal authority. So with that, if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and following. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Elikium. Elikium fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Almost got me there. Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon 
14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Father in heaven, the psalmist writes, confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Amen and amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. All right, let's dive in here. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So to understand Matthew's gospel, we must understand the original audience, who are the Jews who are believers. These are the Messianic Jews. These are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the Messiah, the anointed one from God the Father. So we have Matthew, who is a Jew. He's writing primarily to the other Jews. And his first assertion here is that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. If Jesus had a driver's license, it would read Jesus bar Joseph. Or it would read Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus, his first name means God saves. The Christ, the title, means the anointed one. So when you put the Lord's name and his title together, Jesus Christ, it's translated God saves through the anointed one. Verse 1 continues, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew mentions another important title here. It's immediately going to resonate with the Jewish audience, the son of David. Now, why is that important? Well, the son of David is used by Matthew more than any other gospel writer, and it's because the Messiah must come from the family of the greatest king in the Old Testament. We see a third title here, the son of Abraham. This is a reminder to the Jews of God's promise with Abraham. So Abraham, you have the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, it established Israel as God's chosen people. God chose Israel specifically. Basically, God promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world through Abraham's children. Now, here's the thing. Although King David was Israel's greatest king, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. David sinned terribly. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, who we're going to meet here shortly. And if that wasn't bad enough, David then murdered her husband. That's not good. Abraham as well. Even though he was a man of great faith, he was also far from perfect. Abraham was a liar. He lied twice about his, his wife, Sarah. He told not one, but two different kings that she was his sister. That sin caused him and Sarah a lot of trouble. And yet, and here's the beauty and the grace, guys, is that even in the dysfunction of Abraham and David, God made Abraham the father of his chosen people, and God made David the father of the royal line from whom the Messiah would come. In and amongst all the dysfunction, all the shame, all the guilt, all the sin, he still did that. God did it. Key point number four for us. Jesus was the son of David by royal descent. Excuse me. Jesus was the son of David by royal descent and the son of Abraham by genealogical descent. That's going to make a whole lot more sense when we get 
uh, as we go through the text. Jesus was the son of David by royal descent and the son of Abraham by genealogical descent. So at this point, it's like right here in the, fir- the first verse, um, God is revealing the code that unlocks the truth through Matthew's gospel. Picture a combination lock. You've seen one of those locks that have four dials on them, right? And they all have however many different numbers that you got you to get all four to unlock the, the, the lock itself, correct? Well, picture one that now has 200 of those dials, all right? It's a very long lock, but, and, and each dial has many, many options there. As I read through this genealogy, each name in that genealogy is one of those dials. It must be correct to reveal who this king is. So starting in verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram. All right, let's pause. Notice Tamar here. Matthew mentions four women in his genealogy. Tamar is the first. This is a bit unusual. And what's even more peculiar is that all of these women are non-Jews. They're Gentiles. And all of them with serious character flaws. First here is Tamar. So verse 3 says, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, y'all ready for this this morning? Because I'm about to go all Jerry Springer on you. All right? And I'm not making any of this stuff up. I just want you to know. Write down Genesis 38. (laughs) Judah was not Tamar's husband. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Now, let that sink in for a second. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Ew. (laughs) Tamar is also, she's not a Jew, she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites, they were a wicked people who worshipped idols. God cursed them. Their genealogy descends from a man named Canaan. Okay, well that makes sense. But he was the son of Ham. Ham is Noah's boy. So these two men, Ham and Canaan, they were cursed because of what Ham did to his father. Long story short, Noah spent too much time on the boat. Remember, he gets off the ark, he gets drunk. And something happens between him and Ham, uh, Ham and his dad, and you can read about that in Genesis 9. So that's the lineage of Tamar. Back to our genealogy. Judah has two sons. Both of them are as wicked as they come. The oldest son marries Tamar, but he is so wicked that God strikes him dead. Husband number one dies. Husband number two, um, excuse me, uh, husband number two dies too, but his brother reluctantly becomes Tamar's next husband. That was Jewish law. Husband number two He does something that's so gross and so wicked, I'm not even going to talk about it from the pulpit. God strikes him dead as well. So this left Tamar a widow. She has no children. And then Judah promised Tamar another husband, but he lied. So what's any sane, moral woman do in this situation? 
Answer, you dress up like a prostitute and you sleep with your father-in-law. That's what she did. And she had children. Tamar has twins, Perez and Zira. All that to say this, that's how the royal line was kept alive for Jesus at that time. Dang. But wait, there's more. Verse 4, Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered a nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And then Obed fathered Jesse. So Matthew mentions a second woman in this genealogy, Rahab. Rahab was not uh, Rahab not only dressed up like a prostitute, she was a prostitute. It was her profession. So Rahab is the woman who hid the Jewish spies when God was about to conquer Jericho through Joshua. And the Jews, they, they promised to save her, to save Rahab and to save her family because of what she did for her good deed. Uh, a man named Salmon later marries Rahab and they have a, they have a son named Boaz. Boaz married a woman named Ruth. We also meet a third woman here in Jesus' ancestry, Ruth. Ruth, she's a Moabite woman. God also cursed the Moabites just like he did with the Canaanites. The lineage of the Moabites points back to a man named Moab, who is Lot's boy. Hello. Anybody remember Sodom and Gomorrah? So Ruth comes from that bloodline, from a cursed bloodline. Are you noticing how dysfunctional and impure this lineage is so far? Verse 6, well, Jesse fathered King David. Okay, here we go. King David. Here's a godly man, a man after God's own heart, right? David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. David fathered Solomon by another man's wife. All right. Didn't David have his own wife? Yeah, he had lots of wives. So King David stole another man's wife, and her name was Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba wasn't a prostitute, but she was treated like one by King David. And she's not that innocent either, by the way. So we have all this human dysfunction, and we have all this sexual sin in the first six verses of Jesus' genealogy. Now pause. Why do people watch soap operas? Why do they watch daytime television? Guys, you can't make this stuff up. They got nothing on the Bible. Nothing. <laughs> Verse 7, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Oh boy, here we go. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. So let's pause here. I, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm just picking on the women in this genealogical line. Let's take a look at some of the men here. Ahaz was a king who worshiped other gods. He practiced human sacrifice, meaning he, he, he killed his own children. And then he defiled the temple. You can read about all that in 2 Kings chapter 16. So that's the character of this man, and he's the king of the Jewish people. 
Verse 10, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. So if you thought Ahaz was a wicked king, Manasseh, his son, incredibly, is even worse. Scripture said that Manasseh exceeded in his wickedness even more so than the pagan nations that God destroyed. So you have a Jewish king who is more wicked than the pagan nations that God destroys. Wow. Verse 11, Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Elikium. Elikium fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now, Notice the wording in verse 16. It does not say that Jacob fathered Joseph. Joseph fathered Jesus. Right? Look at the verse. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. And that, See, Jacob fathered Joseph, Joseph fathered Jesus. That would have been Matthew's flow from the, from the very beginning there. But verse 16 says that Mary gave birth to Jesus without stating who his biological father is. Man, that's even more scandalous than combining Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba together. And we'll get to all that next Sunday. So here we go, verse 17. Matthew says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, they were 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, Matthew uses that word all. Matthew's not saying that he included all the generations in his genealogy. He's referring to those on his list. So when you look at Matthew's genealogy, even when you look at, at Luke's genealogy, neither one purposely included everyone. In fact, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham. And not only that, when you compare the, the list, the names are not the same. Uh-oh, that's not good, is it? Do we have a conflict in Scripture? No. Remember now that the gospel writer has a different audience and a different theme for writing. So Luke's list tracks Mary's descendants. Matthew is tracking Joseph. So Matthew is focused on the kingly line here. And then secondly, what's the deal with the number 14 in verse 17? Matthew structures the genealogy to count 14 generations. And then as you look in your Bible there, you see three significant genealogy sections, right? Um, the first 14 generations, you've got Abraham to David. So God chooses Abraham's lineage to be God's chosen people. God chooses David's lineage to be the messianic king. The second grouping there. The second 14 generations, David to the Babylonian exile. So that time frame is the Israelites are without a king or without a godly king. And the third 14 generations, 
That's from the exile to the birth of Jesus. That's when the king finally arrives. And you say, Dustin, who cares? I'm thinking about lunch. <laughs> right? Well, it's a Jewish practice known as gematria. And by its simplest definition, gematria is attributing a number to a person. We see gematria in the book of Revelation. This is so cool. Look at this. Revelation 13, 18. This calls for wisdom. It does because gematria is really confusing. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. And here we go. Because it is the number of a person. It's the number 666. So in our context today, the number 14 represents King David. And Matthew announces this crucial and this amazing truth at each section of the genealogy. So Matthew repeats himself three times. Why would he repeat himself three times? Because the number three signifies completeness. When we think of the number three, we think of, many of us, the triune God, the Trinity. Uh, God in the form of three persons. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, Isaiah 6.3, Revelation 4.8 says that God is holy, holy, holy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So all that to say this. So what Matthew is doing here, he's, reiterate, he's reiterating not once, not twice, but three times, which is the number of completeness that King Jesus is absolutely, positively from the genealogical line of King David. Wow. Remember that combination lock that has 200 options that you're supposed to figure out? What are the odds of that for you to figure that thing out the first time? Humanly, it's impossible. However, David's kingly line was divinely protected through sinful people just like me and you. So, dear friends, this list is much more than an ancient list from, uh, uh, from a phone book. It's much more than that. It's a beautiful testimony to God's grace. King Jesus is a friend to sinners. And the king that Matthew is presenting here, he's a king of grace. This king has come to save Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free. Why? Because we're all sinners. When you boil our lives down, we're all beggars and thieves. We need his grace and we need his leadership. So why is it important for us to know, number one, that Jesus is king, and number two, that we live as a church, we live in the kingdom of God? How is all of this relevant for us today? Well, have you ever read the book of Judges? The book of Judges reveals a period that is the darkest days of the nation for Israel. Why was it so dark? It was dark because of the lack of godly leadership. The leaders who were in charge, they were just as corrupt and wicked as the people. The period of, of the judges is characterized by acts of unspeakable depravity at every level. Individually, tribally, nationally, homosexuality, rape, murder, civil war. It, it is one depressing book. 
The injustice of what was happening during that time was a byproduct of Israel's apostasy. Apostasy, the, the neglecting or the deserting of our faith of the one true living God. People just walked away from God. They turned their backs on him. So what are we left with when a nation walks away from God? We don't have to guess, do we? God tells them, he tells us himself, because there's a reoccurring theme in the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25, you can see it up there. The, reoc the reoccurring theme is this. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they wanted. And dear friends, everybody doing what they want with no accountability, that's what happens when a nation doesn't have a godly leader. When there is no godly leader... There is no safety. You're on your own. When there's no godly leader, there's no justice. People will take advantage of you, and there's no recourse for their crimes. There's no one to submit to. There is no one to learn from. There is no one to ask for help. There is no one, period. The end. Now, it's just a really good thing that we live in the, in the United States of America, and we're above all that. As a nation, are we doing what's right in our own eyes? We can't take God out of the school and out of the government and out of the workplace and not have consequences. We can't murder over 60 million babies and not have consequences. We can't legalize sodomy and lesbianism and call it marriage and not have consequences. We can't conjure our own definition of what truth is and not have consequences. Today, we are no longer the United States of America. We are divided. And it seems that every minor issue sets us off. Why? Because the country as a whole doesn't respect their leadership. Half the country didn't respect the previous administration. The other half of the country doesn't respect the current administration. Starting back in the 1960s is when our government and our leadership really started to fail us. And we're living in those consequences today. The USA is living out its own chapter of the book of Judges. We have lost our way. And dear friends, it's only going to get worse. I had somebody come up to me after the Christmas Eve service and say, you're not really full of good news, are you? <laughs> she focused on the bad. I, I pray that as you hear these things, as we exposit the word of God verse by verse, that you you do hear the Lord in all of this, that there is good and there is bad and, and the Lord is in the bad. But it's true. And dear friends, I would be lying to you if, if, I, if I didn't say the things, the hard things that I need to say as we go through the word to prepare us as a church in the Verde Valley for what's getting ready to come. It is going to get worse. However, the Lord has brought us together so that we can muddle through this whole thing together. Now, if you're a history buff, 
you know that when a country gets to the point that we are with our morality, there's no going back. There's only one country who has come back from such moral depravity, and that's Israel. So what do we do? Head, heart, and then our hands. We use our head. We learn from the King of Kings this study of Matthew's gospel. Our hearts, we are to take Jesus' words seriously, and we are to apply them to our lives. And we are to use our hands. We are to share this life-giving message of King Jesus. Head, heart, hands. We are to learn, apply, and share. Why all the trouble, Dustin? Why? Well, because we have a dual citizenship. As the church, we, we are citizens of this great country. But more importantly, we are citizens of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king. So, dear friends, that's why Matthew's gospel is so relevant for us today. This life that we're living, very temporary. We're all going to be seeing the Lord Jesus face to face very quickly. The next life, however, is eternal. And it's this life where God is preparing us for this eternal kingdom that we're going to talk about. Father in heaven, what an amazing, amazing study through a list of names that you've given to us. The, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the, the heredity of, of the King of Kings. And, and I, can't, I can't not think of, of the Lord's Prayer as, as I was preparing for this message, that your kingdom come and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is our prayer as well. Father, thank you for this gathering. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.